it's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we're going to be talking about growing pains. Every time I hear the term growing pains, I can't help but see Michael Seaver in my head. Kirk Cameron playing Michael Seaver in the 1980s sitcom. But whenever we talk about growing pains, it's not a sitcom that we are talking about. We're talking about just the pains that happens when someone grows. I mean, have you ever tried to grow something, anything? It's not easy. If you're trying to learn an instrument, master a sport, pick up a hobby, or grow a business or organization, there are bound to be growing pains. Pains of learning how to do things properly. You make mistakes and you learn from them. You try to find ways to correct those mistakes. People have growing pains and so do organizations. Wherever there are people, <laughs> there are bound to be problems. However, we have to learn how to handle them. Churches are not perfect groups, and contrary to popular opinion, they are organisms and organizations. The church is a vine, but it's also a trellis. The vine is the organism, and the trellis is the organization. And the vine without the trellis has fruit dying on the vine. The vine can only grow to the extent that the trellis helps it. Pruning the vine and expanding the trellis is not easy. Because... Oftentimes, that means conflict. What happens whenever God moves and we encounter that age-old problem of conflict? Are we going to just chalk it up to spiritual warfare? Could be. Or could it simply be a misperception of things? How do we handle it? How do we handle it, handle it in the church? I mean, I have been in ministry for over 20 years and served on staff at different churches, and while doctrinal issues come up and have to be dealt with— they are not as frequently the main problem as some might suppose. Instead, in my experience, it's often been issues that have come up that have to do more with personal conflicts, slights, misperceptions, and the like. That's where most of the problems often are. Of course, these issues are not new. And we need to go back to the Bible to see what God says about them. Because while conflicts might be inevitable, chaos doesn't have to be. Let's check in and see how conflicts do occur and how we can deal with them as we drift into this episode from the early church in Acts chapter 6. And as we do, we want to give a shout out to the Derek Eastman Insurance Agency, one of our sponsors. If you're looking for life, home, or auto insurance, then Derek Eastman is your guy. Get a free quote from Derek Eastman in Sugar Grove, Illinois at 630-466-1144. Now let's get after it. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry 
of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So let's get the text. I mean, really, let's just try to set the stage for what is going on. When we last left off the church, we saw the church explode. It went from 120 to 3,000 to over 5,000. I mean, can you imagine being a part of that just to grow that rapidly? That's incredible. We, we are seeing God's spirit work in the lives of the people there in phenomenal ways. But such growth is filled with people. I mean, exactly that, people. Yes, they are redeemed people. Yes, they are changed people. But they are still an imperfect people nonetheless. We all are. And whenever you have people, you will inevitably encounter conflict. Personality conflicts, communication issues arose, and whatever else you can think of came up. And this church is expanding rapidly. And and here, we actually have one of the very first problems come up in the very history of the church. We begin in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, We have to really put the lens on this for a moment and zoom in. Here's the situation that we have. When Alexander the Great conquered the known world, it caused Greek language and culture to become the common language and culture over much of the known world at that time. People started wearing the same clothes, language, adopting the same expressions, customs, etc. Perhaps a modern equivalent would be the popularity of celebrities from the United States and exported to other places. A great deal of American music, celebrities, athletes, and the like finds its way to different places of the world. When I was in Liberia, for example, I was told that Liberia is called Little America because what came out in America would find its way to Liberia in the next day or two. So if a movie came out in the United States, with two days, it would be in Liberia. So you could see like the Avengers in Chicago, Illinois, or New York City, and there it would be in Liberia in the next day or too. And a lot of the, the expressions, the, the popular videos, the clothes, the fashion, the jokes, all of that got exported to different parts of the world. And people begin to adopt that. They would, they would dress in those clothes, listen to the same music, use the same expressions. And we're, and we're seeing that with globalization, a lot of American culture is being exported to different parts of the world and vice versa. Other parts of other parts of the world are brought to us. And then we have a tendency to adopt them. And in the case of the early church, that's what's going on, is that they became Hellenistic because people, for the most part, wanted to be Greek. That's what Hellenism is talking about, Greek culture. And they are using the language and observing some of the customs, or maybe they even simply inherited it from their parents who adopted it. And then it became normative in that culture. 
The same is true for many Jews living outside of the Holy Land. They were Greek-speaking and followed several Greek customs, and those who practiced such things were called Hellenists. Now, Hellas is the original word for Greece. That's where it comes from, which the word Hellenistic, uh, as I said before, is derived from. And those who chose to adopt the culture were called, you guessed it, Hellenists. Many Jews wanted to go back to their homeland because it was the headquarters for the Jewish temple or because they wanted to honor their family's past or to complete a vow. Some wanted to go to Israel for religious freedom purposes. There were some Hellenistic widows who moved to Israel because they thought that they might find a support system at the temple. Here we have the early church doing this, and the apostles are organizing it. Remember, they are having people bring them money, and they are distributing the monies to all as they have need. But one group was being missed, the Hellenistic widows. There's a principle here for us that as we grow, we, may say, we might see frustration spring up. More people that there are, then the more problems there will be, especially if those people are of different ethnic groups or backgrounds or cultures than ourselves. People will be frustrated at one thing or another, and those frustrations need to be managed. Sometimes frustrations often ha happen because we may be ignorant of the needs of that certain people group. We're not exactly sure why the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. The Greek word used here can be translated as neglected or simply overlooked. Perhaps they didn't know that Hellenistic widows needed help. We have a tendency to surround ourselves with people who look and act like us, and it could quite possibly be that they didn't know what the needs of these widows were. Oftentimes in church, this happens. People get frustrated that they weren't visited in the hospital or that the church didn't reach out to them after a tragic event or if they are going through a tragic situation, but oftentimes the church simply just didn't know what was going on or how it affected the person. I've had people come to me over the years frustrated that someone didn't visit or reach out. But my first question is, did we or they know? Did you tell us or them? We aren't mind readers and God hasn't given us the ability to be omniscient. We check in the best that we possibly can, but life goes on around us all the time. And it's impossible to get everyone equally at all times. And if there is a need, then we need to be made aware of it. Moreover, this is another reason why we need to be together, not just on Sundays, but through the week. We can't know how to meet someone's need if we are not together and communicating about our own needs. It could have been that the disciples were simply ignorant of the needs of the Hellenistic widows, or it could be that they were simply indifferent to them. They may have known about it, but they just simply didn't care. I doubt this is the case with them, but I know that this does happen in church regardless. There are those who believe that people don't care about them and what they are going through. They are simply handled, as it were, or passed over, disregarded. No one seems to care about them, or even if they are there or not. This is just plain wrong. But something that does unfortunately happen. Sometimes it's not that leadership is indifferent, but is simply tired and not able to keep up. I can't imagine being the apostles trying to keep up with so many people at one time. That could have easily been the situation. They were trying to keep up with this burgeoning church and couldn't do it. It could also be that the apostles were intentionally discriminating against them. At first glance, this seems like what is going on. Why else would the text seek to bring out the term Hellenistic 
unless it was to show that they were being discriminated against. And while this happened throughout history, I'm not sure that this is the case here. And here's why. There was no mission of wrongdoing, no guilt, no seeking for seeking of forgiveness from the apostles. And if the early church leaders that the church was looking into for guidance was guilty discriminating because of language, then it would seem to cause the church to disintegrate before it really even was able to grow. However, the Hellenistic widows may have felt that. And even if it was not true, it was felt to be true or sensed to be true. Maybe they were reading their past experiences into it, and then it still has to be dealt with in one shape or another. Or a fourth reason is it simply could have been that they have ineffective systems to help them. In other words, the church may have grown so quickly that it outgrew their ability to handle it. They perhaps didn't have the administrative skills necessary to handle the task. And, and this is why this might be the actual reason why. I mean, I mean, first of all, as we have already noted, there is no apology offered by the apostles. And secondly, I think the apostles' response is pretty telling in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They were so busy trying to help the widows that they couldn't preach and pray. It's not as if they were denigrating what the others were doing. They were not saying that the others couldn't share the word and definitely weren't saying that others couldn't pray or that their prayers were less effective. If they saw this task as inferior, as some have imagined over time, then it would seem strange that the text goes to such great lengths as to describe qualifications of the people who are to be chosen for the task. Additionally, why would the scripture say later in James chapter 1 verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself in stain from the world. If this weren't a big deal, if it weren't a big deal, why talk about it? Taking care of the orphans and widows seemed so less than preaching on one hand. But if that's the case, why isn't that mentioned in James as a sign of pure religion? The point is not to put down other ministries, but it is to show that there is a mission that they have before them and they can't do everything. They must be doing what really God has called them to specifically. That's the problem. The good was getting in the way of what God had called and gifted them to do, and that was to preach the word. The point that Luke is making here is that anything good can threaten to impair our mission. Their mission was to preach the word, and taking care of the widows and orphans in this instance would have impaired them from preaching and praying. The word tables refers to tables used in monetary manner, matters, as well as for serving meals. And that wasn't their task. However, what was the mission of the guys appointed to the task? Their mission was to take care of the widows, to create a system whereby their widows were taken care of. In our culture, there are great many good things that threaten us from fulfilling our mission. It could be several things, work, school, friends, family obligations, etc. Or it could be something good that others might think is great and admirable, but that is not what they were called to do. We need to do what God has called us to do as individuals and as a church. What has God called you to do that you're not doing? Isn't it evangelizing? Using your administration gift? 
There are many different gifts, faith, evangelism, teaching, shepherding, helps, knowledge, etc. Find your mission and stick with it. Today, we have a lot of competition. We don't know always what to do. We're stressed out because of all the choices before us, and we don't know which one to choose. Don't be stressed. Take a step of faith and start serving, and don't let anything else detour you from that. With that being said, I want to take a moment to focus on verse 1 again, because there is something here that I believe is vitally important. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. I want to focus on the word complaint here for a bit. The Greek word uh, for complaint means murmuring, muttering, and refers to a secret debate going on, although it is not openly discussed. It is not a good word. It's used a few times, and there is never a good outcome whenever it is used. In fact, Paul commands us that we are not to grumble or murmur in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. If we don't grumble then, how do we share what is bothering us? That's the question, right? If there's not a means to share our complaints? So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we need to follow certain steps to deal with our frustrations. If we don't have a process of dealing with our frustrations, they will inevitably or eventually come out. So we do have to follow certain steps to deal with our frustrations. Here's the first step. We are to check our own hearts. Is our issue real? Ask yourself this question. Why am I frustrated right now? Oftentimes the issue is only in our mind. And it's not real. It could be a misperception. It could be that we are taking things that we have experienced in the past and we are then projecting them onto that person. Or it could be that we're jealous. We want that attention. Or we're simply hurt of being overlooked before. And we become a bit paranoid and think that people don't like us. Or perhaps they have slighted us or overlooked us in one way or another. Oftentimes, that is not the case. We find ourselves reading into things, and we have to check our hearts to see if we perceive things correctly. Secondly, when we're dealing with this, we need to choose to believe the best. We are to believe the best about them rather than go to the worst. And I have a tendency to do this. I go negative before I go positive. And maybe you are the same. I, I do. I go negative right away, and I take their for, forgetfulness as a personal slight, and I hold on to it, and then I become bitter and angry. And maybe you're the same way, and that leads to worse things. And I have to correct and stop myself and refocus, because in in the Bible, in First Corinthians chapter three, verse thirteen, excuse me, verse seven, we read, "Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things." endures all things. If you truly love them, you will believe the best about them and will not automatically go to the negative. As we read within the scripture, love covers over a multitude of sins. Thirdly, we are to comply with the chain of command. Here is what I mean. If you are in a small group and another member of your small group said or did something that upset you, who do you go to? First of all, Scripture says you are to go to that person. But if you need counsel, you should go to the small group leader. And we have to be careful in that and check our motives 
Because oftentimes we can mask our evil intent under the guise of spiritual language. Here's what I mean. If you say that you have a problem with someone or you believe you have a problem with someone and you want to talk to the small group leader about them in order to get counsel, you really don't want get want counsel at all. You simply want to sully the name and get this person, this leader, to agree with you about the other person. When you know that you should simply go and talk to that person and you don't need to include that leader in that discussion. That happens. And of course, there are many different parts and pieces to that. I would recommend going to the person first of all, but if you really do need counsel and in your heart you know that you do, then go to that leader. If it can be solved with them, you go to the person who's supervising the small group or one of your elders, or if you have the pastor that you need to go to. Some folks have an issue and they want to go directly to the pastor right away and unload. But sometimes the pastor isn't the right person. And you, couldn't, you could be in danger of saying something foolish or making a false accusation, which could have been headed off had you spoken to the proper people first. And if you still have an issue and they can't help, then help them create solutions. Give realistic ideas and specific steps to take. You, you see, the apostles came up with a solution. Appoint some Hellenistic men of character to solve the problem but help create solutions. I remember when I, I served at a church in uh, my church in Massachusetts, we had one man who simply loved shooting down every idea that I had. In fact, every idea that I threw up, it felt like it was a clay pigeon and every idea was him saying, pull, and he was shooting it down. I told him that he could shoot down my ideas all day, but he needed to help us come up with a solution besides finding the reason why my ideas wouldn't work. Help, and I was trying to invite him to create a solution to the problem rather than just bring mine down all day. I don't care if, if, my, idea, if my idea is bad, it needs, to be, it needs to be called out. I get it. But I need people to help create something in return. Now, I have described what we are to do, but allow me a moment to talk about what we are not to do. And this is just not only for you, but it's for me too. We are not to criticize others. Don't go around talking bad about anything and everything that the church is not doing or what it has done. It is easy to criticize. I mean, and I'm not talking just about church here. We criticize movies, service, music performances, websites, videos, podcasts, and the like. We're great critics. When I was a much younger man, I used to be a huge critic. In fact, every movie or show I went to, I would seek to dissect it once it was over, which then bled into how I looked at church. And, and I realized I had to stop. Finally, I stopped criticizing altogether as much as I possibly could because I realized I could always find something wrong. And that was sapping my joy. I'm not saying that we live in ignorance, but I am saying that we need to change our perspective. Criticizing is easy to do, and finding solutions is hard. Don't make your leadership's job harder by always criticizing and finding what they're doing wrong. And let's make sure that we're not too we're not colluding with other people. Collude is a word that is getting a great deal of press in the news. It means to come to a secret understanding for a harmful purpose, conspire. Several years ago, I came upon a meeting at one of the churches I served at. 
I'd walked in on my day off, and I came into the office and found a couple of leaders talking very quietly. I walked in, and they quickly got quiet. They seemed to be embarrassed to see me, and the way the entire situation was laid out seemed that they were talking about something that they didn't want me to hear. I grabbed what I needed and went on my merry way. I didn't say anything, but soon after, it came out that they were colluding with one another at how to take power in the church. Well, that's wrong. And it became apparent that they were both wrong, and they eventually ended up leaving the church quite embarrassed. Don't collude with others against leadership. Go through the chain of command. And if you still feel as if you aren't being heard and it would violate your conscience to stay where you are at, maybe it's time to respectfully and politely remove oneself from the situation. And give them, if you believe that you've suffered an injustice, remember the truth of the scripture, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I know that's a very hard thing to grasp when you've been hurt. And there does need to be justice. And there need to be voices. And I am grateful when I see that people are stepping up to seek justice for past hurts. And oftentimes, churches have simply glossed over them. And that should not be the case. The church should be the advocate for those who have been hurt, harmed, or treated so poorly. And I am grateful that such injustices are being righted. However, if we do not have that ability to bring forth that justice that we so desire, we have to entrust ourselves to God, who says, don't take vengeance, justice or vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It takes a tremendous faith to do that in our culture today. Nevertheless, that's what God calls us to. Lastly, we're also to make sure that we're not carrying around unrealistic expectations. Oftentimes in churches, we have a tendency to place unrealistic expectations on our leaders. We want them to be amazing preachers. We want them to be great CEOs, fantastic, perfect leaders. We expect them to be able to help us through every situation or give us the solution to every problem. And we go online and listen to other speakers and, and teachers, and we wonder why our leader is not like that. And that leads to great disappointment. While there are some realistic and healthy, healthy expectations that we should have of our leadership— and I mean by that, what I mean by that is, is that we should be treated with respect, that we are valued and loved, that they will treat us fairly and honestly. We can't expect that they will know how to handle every situation that comes their way. The people wanted the apostles to handle everything well, and the apostles actually turned it back around to them and had them be the solution to their own problem. The, they appointed qualified men to lead the task of helping their widows, and it was a win-win for them all. As we experience these growing pains, we can see that we will have to find good people to serve around us. And while we are no longer in the age of the apostles, we can see that we are still to find good people to serve in expanding God's kingdom. Churches are growing, and every church needs people, all kinds of people, to serve. Men and women of character, regardless of culture or language, and they are to be looking for people who want to serve and expand God's kingdom. God's kingdom is diverse. 
Let's look at the criteria that the apostles used to select the leaders who would help. Notice that they were to pick seven men of good repute, of good reputation, meaning that they were proven and trustworthy Christ followers, shown to be men of integrity and justice. In other words, they are to have a good standing in the church. These are people who have been around, who have had a heart to serve, to serve God and had treated people fairly. The church is young, but in this time, they had proven themselves. And it was a short time, but they'd proven themselves. How does this translate to our own time? Well, if you are to be used of God, you need to commit to the people of God. You need to serve, to step in and be available. I'm amazed at how many just want to be entertained, to be observers, but not participate in what God is doing. If you want to be used of God, then you need to be involved with God's people, and that takes time, sacrifice, patience, and persistence. It's not going to happen overnight. There will be conflict, but it is through that conflict that intimacy and trust can be developed. Notice that they were also to be full of the Spirit, which means that they needed to be Spirit-filled. Well, what does that mean? It means that we're doing things that God wants in the way that God wants it done. When we come to know Jesus, we are given God's spirit to dwell within us, to live within us. If God lives in us, how then do we learn to be filled with the spirit? Is it different? Yes. While we have the spirit of God living in us, we're not always living in the spirit or being filled with the spirit. What does it mean then? As people, we are more than our flesh. We possess a soul, spirit, and body. J. Hampton Keithley III wrote, The spirit, Numa, is the part that enables man to perceive the divine. Through this component, he can know and communicate with God. The higher element, though damaged through the fall of Adam, is sufficiently intact to provide each individual a consciousness of God. The soul, the psyche, is the sphere of man's will and emotions. Here is his true center of personality. It gives him a self-consciousness that relates to the physical world through the body and to God through the spirit. Whenever we receive God's spirit, he influences and directs our spirit, but our spirit has to submit to the Holy Spirit of God. And this happens by dying to sin and then taking in the things of the spirit means reading the word of God, because that is God-breathed, meditating upon it, applying the word, which then enables us to discern more clearly the mind of God, which enables us to sense sin and pursue righteousness. Let me put it a bit differently. If I get on my bike, I need to, I need my tires to be filled, but it's not the tire that is filled. It's actually the inner tube. I've already had some air in my tires, but it's not enough. I need more air. When I fill it up, I'm great. Your body is the tire, your soul is the inner tube, and your spirit is the air in the tire already. You need to be filled with God's spirit. How? By taking off the cap of flesh and then by hooking up to the air compressor of his word and allowing him to fill you. The problem is that we are tires that leak and we need to be filled up frequently. The spirit-filled person is the person who is constantly hooking up to the air compressor of his word through reading, listening, meditating, and obeying what God says. If we read that these leaders also need to possess wisdom, in other words, they need to be skilled. They know how to work with people, know how to discern situations well, and have the practical common sense how to help people. 
Not everyone in this situation was wise to be able to do it well. But whenever we look for any type of leader, we need to find people that are skilled to do the task that God has called them to. And then we make sh- need to make sure that they are set apart for this task. They appoint them to the job, and then they prayed for them, laid their hands on them, which was their way of blessing them and setting them apart for a specific task. Leaders need to be recognized by other leaders in the church as those designated with authority to do the task. And the specific task was for helping the Hellenistic widows. And this leads to many more questions. What is your task that God wants to set you apart for? It may not be a position such as this, but there is something. What is it? Notice what happens after these guys step into the position, which enables the apostles to continue on to do the mission God had for them. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God continued to increase. It continued to go forth. The gospel was able to be spread. They were able to teach others, train others, disciple others in their home and at the temple. The truth of God's word started to transform hearts and minds, and many folks stepped into the kingdom of God. The number of disciples multiplied, but not just any of them. The hardest group to reach, the priests, came to believe in the truth of who Jesus is. The principle is this. When we are doing what we are supposed to be doing, it enables the kingdom of God to spread in amazing ways. For priests to come to faith in Jesus was a big deal. But that's what happened when men and women are released to do the job that God has for them and the kingdom expanded in amazing ways. Do you want to see lives changed? I do. Then it requires each one of us to step out in faith and to step into service. And this isn't always pretty. There are growing pains. What and how Is God calling you to serve? If you fail to follow and do what God has for you to do, you're not only forfeiting blessing for yourself, but you are causing stress and greater burden on those around you. We are a community, a community of believers, a community that depends on one another. And without you there serving, doing what God has made you to do, then the message becomes clogged. Lives are not changed, and the glory of God becomes diminished. Step out in faith. Ask God how you might serve. That's your water bottle for the week. Step out in faith and ask God how you might serve. And in doing so, you will experience the joy of doing and knowing you were accomplishing what God made you to be and do. We want to thank Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate for sponsoring today's show. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to give Kathy a call at 630-201-4664. She will hook you up with exactly what you need. I would recommend giving her a call because she is awesome at what she does, and I know that she can help you. I also want to thank you for listening in today. If, you, if this episode has helped you saturate your world, then would you do us a huge favor? 
because we want other people to know about this ministry that God has called us to. We would ask that you would hit the subscribe button because the more that you hit that subscribe button or the more people, excuse me, that hit that subscribe button, that will help other people get to know. That will drive up the podcast so that others who are searching and seeking can find us easier. And it it would help us if you would go online and leave us a review. Positive ones, please. Interact with us on our social media pages. Because in doing all of that, there is this algorithm that captures those websites and ministries that are having more interaction. And that puts us to the top so that other people might know the truth of who Jesus is. They might have their faith watered so that they can water their world. And once again, I need to acknowledge our team. Kevin O'Brien, Eliana Fleming, Rebecca Badal, and our newest member, our new audio engineer, Donovan Martin. We're going to miss Brian, who is still part of our team, but has stepped into a new career opportunity and needs the time to get acclimated. To Brian, we are going to miss you and you will always be a part of our team. But to Donovan, welcome aboard. We are so honored to have you and honored to serve alongside you. And for everyone else, water your faith this week. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.